Well, good morning again. Uh, some of you may have heard the news this past week, um, a recent scientific discovery regarding the Earth's core. There's actually a new core that's been discovered, a 400-mile-wide metallic ball at the very center of the Earth. This is a, a new thing. You thought you knew. We thought we knew the planet on which we live, but not as well as we thought. Now we know that at the, there's a new core at the core, this 400-mile-wide metallic ball uh, there at the middle of it all. Which got me to thinking about another discovery that's a bit older than that one. Um, Copernicus, uh, some of you have heard me mention him a time or two. The, the imagery here is so uh, substantial, I guess, for our purposes here this morning. So, Ptolemy, the second century AD, mathematician, astronomer, brilliant guy. For four, excuse me, 1,400 years, the, the, the model of the universe was the idea that the Earth was at the center. The Earth was at the center, and the sun and the moon and all the planets revolved around it. That was the model for centuries. And then this guy named Copernicus shows up and comes up with this crazy, wild-haired idea that, no, that's not actually what's, what is the case. It's actually a solar system, meaning that when it comes to our little system, you have the sun at the middle, at the center, the Earth, the moon, and all the other planets revolving around it. Now, that was a game changer. That upset a lot of apple carts uh, at the time. It was absolutely vital. It was absolutely necessary. It's, it's true to what is. It was what has oftentimes been referred to as a revolution, hence the Copernican revolution is how it is described. Um, it's, the, the idea of what Copernicus was driving at is what's at the center? What's at the center, in this case of the solar system? It's necessary, a right understanding to have that we would understand how things are and therein live accordingly. So let's extrapolate from that and move to this. So not solar system, but reality. What, and not just what, but who, who is at the center of all of reality? And the, the answer is not you, not me, God. God is at the center of reality, and we have to reckon with that in all that we are, in all that we do, and to the degree that we don't, we're getting it wrong. It is not a me-centered universe, a you-centered universe, an us-centered universe. It is a God-centered universe. And that's taking us to where we're heading here this morning, the fifth and final installment in this little mini-series uh, through our new vision statement. Let me walk you through this. Again, it's going to be on the screen. You might, some of you might have a printed copy as well. So, and this is, I'm going exactly the same path that we've gone the last several weeks, you know, here setting all this up. So, the summary sentence, boiling it all down into one simple way of understanding is, is just this. Christ Presbyterian Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of all people. That's the bare essence of it. Then going just a step further, 
uh, unpacking that, uh, helping us understand just a little bit more, okay, so a little bit more detail. And this is, these are the, you can see in the bold, those have been the, the five weeks, the five pillars, if you will, of this, this statement. We are a covenant family, being transformed to the likeness of Christ, rejoicing in and displaying uh, His truth, goodness, and grace, growing in love and service and relationship to God and our community for the glory of God and His kingdom, present and eternal. Again, you can see there on the screen. It's there in the printed copies uh, that, that you might have with you or on the website, the newsletters, all of that. In the, the bold sections of that statement are then extrapolated even more in another heading, another paragraph that comes up under that so that we would know a little bit more. So we're looking at this last one, for the glory of God and his kingdom, present and eternal. That is summarized, putting it this way. We earnestly long for the time when God will make all things new. While we wait for that day, we will interact with our world in a way that displays the glorious reality that Christ has died and risen. We will build his kingdom rather than our own. Critical, critical point there towards the end. Going from there, there are some bullet points in the statement. Just pressing this a little bit more detail, a little bit more detail. How might this be fleshed out? His glory is His, and we will humble ourselves before Him and each other. His glory is evident in creation, and we will care for it. His glory is evident in His Word, and we will cherish it and hide it in our hearts. His glory is coming in full, and we will pray for and encourage each other to wait for Him in faith. Now, this is our vision statement. Where I want to go over the next few minutes is just asking, well, asking this question and then wrestling with the answer. How is that reflected in the scriptures? What does the Lord say to this in terms of this idea of glory? And again, if you want to go back to the image of the orbits, of Him being at the center of all things. Okay? So along, with that in mind, we're going to go to one particular passage, uh, Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. This is the last section of Romans 11. It's 16 chapters, but this is the very last part of chapter 11. If you're trying to find that in your Bible, it is on the screen, but if you're trying to find that in your Bible, you've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have the book of Acts, and the first of the letters that we have in the New Testament in terms of the order is the book of Romans. First and second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all that comes after that. Romans, though, is where we are. Romans 11. Um, hear now God's word. Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Can we pray together? Lord Jesus, you have heard my stumbling lips over these last days in prayer. And again, I say it again, I feel like I'm looking at a, a, the Milky Way, a mountain vista 
the ocean depth, there's so much here in this passage. I feel like we are just taking a, walking into the most grand museum we could possibly envision, opening the door, taking a peek and closing it, hardly having a time to, or a moment, the opportunity that's deserved uh, to really delve into this. But we have a few minutes. We have a few minutes. So Jesus, would you please give us a glimpse, give us what we need uh, here as we're opening the door, as you are giving us this moment, giving us this time, this opportunity to hear from you, uh, to stand with the Apostle Paul as he is just awestruck in contemplating these things. Um, give us the ability to see what he was seeing, to feel what he was feeling, to uh, hear what he was hearing. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, I'm just going to cut right into this, this passage. Not a lot to set it up. Um, context. Context is vital here that we would understand, like, how does this little section here fit into the book of Romans as a whole? So this is the very end of chapters 9 through 11. Chapters 9 through 11, Paul is taking great pains to assure his readers that the assurances, the soaring assurances that he spoke of, the wondrous, amazing promises that he spoke of back in chapter 8 are in fact ours. That's what chapters 9 and 11 are all about. That we would know that the great heights and depths and breadths of the, of the promises, assurances given in chapter 8 are actually ours. Now you may be wondering at this point, well, what are those promises? What are those assurances back in chapter 8? Well, along these lines, the promise of the coming, the indwelling, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The reality of our adoption as God's children, His beloved sons and daughters. The reality of eternal glory that awaits every one of us. The reality of election, our having been chosen, predestined. The reality of eternal security, nothing being able to shake our standing with our Father forever. Forever. Those are the promises. Those are the assurances that Paul is locked in on in chapter 8. It's quite a chapter. Go back and read it. Chapters 9 through 11 is his going to taking great pains to assure the reader that that is true. That that is true. That that will hold. And so, friend, if you are a follower of Jesus, you can rejoice this day and rest in those realities because they are true. And he has made it so for you, for me, for all of his followers, all of his disciples ever since. Now at this moment, at this moment as Paul is writing the book of Romans, he gets to the end of, you could say he gets to, ch to chapter 11, what we would call verse 32. The numbers weren't there when he wrote it, of course. But when he gets to that point, he Stops. I can't help but think he stops. He doesn't tell us he stops, but I can't help but think that the great mighty apostle, our brother, Paul, stops, is awestruck, drops the pen, and breaks out into poetry and praise. 
which you read in verses 33 through 36, aren't like anything that you've read up to this point. He stands awestruck as he looks back at everything that he has just said and takes it in and can't say another word, can't breathe another word. The wind's been knocked out of him. He can't go any further. He can't talk about the implications, the applications, the significance of all of that in chapters 12 through 16, which is coming. But he can't go any further until he breaks into poetry and praise, doxology. Chapter 11, verses 33 through 36. That's what we just read. When Paul drops the pen. Now, granted, he has to pick it up to write that, but you get, you get the idea. Okay. This moment when Paul drops the pen. That's what we just read. He begins with these astonishing, astonished, astonished exclamations. Uh, you, you see it there in verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. The, the wonder, how high, how wide, how deep, the, how broad his love, his mercy, his affection, his wisdom, his understanding, unfathomable inscrutable, beyond our grasping, beyond our reaching, beyond our understanding. Yes, we can, like, like just, yeah, you can get it, to, but you can't take it in. It's too much. It's too much. The exclamations. Then he moves on to his rhetorical questions. They aren't meant to be answered. That's a rhetorical question. He asks these questions. He's quoting from Job and Isaiah here at this point. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? The idea being that we have no counsel to give God. We have no gift to give God. We will never be his counselor or his creditors. He lacks nothing that we can supplement. Because he lacks nothing at all. Moving from there, past the exclamations and the questions, then comes this summation. Then comes this doxology. Verse uh, 36. For from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. The idea being that God is due everlasting glory. He is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. God is due everlasting glory for He encompasses the beginning and the end. Everything. Everything. Everything is included in Him. Everything is com comprehended in Him. Everything is encompassed in Him. He is due everlasting glory for He encompasses all things is what the apostle is saying here. Now, to speak of his comprehended, um, his uh, encompassing all things, how far does that all go? Out over the horizon and it just keeps going. Up into the stars and it just keeps going. Two simple ways to break it down. 
Uh, his, he is due everlasting glory for he encompasses all things in terms of creation and all things in terms of salvation. And there's really nothing left out there when you think about it. So all things in terms of his creation, all things in terms of his salvation. Let's, look, let's just drill into this for a few moments. Let's let these prepositions speak, shall we? From him and to, from him and through him and to him. Uh, so, all things in terms of creation. Uh, all things are from him in terms of creation. So here's the question. Here's the question. Where did it come from? Where did it all come from? What is its source? And the answer is God. Like first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1:1. In the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. The universe is the product of his making and all of it. Everything that you can see with the telescope and everything you can see with the microscope. Everything far, everything near, everything big, everything little. Everything you can see and everything you can't. All of it. Everything that ever was, everything that ever ever be. Am I leaving anything out? All of it owes its existence, its isness, to God. He created all things of nothing. A lot of creative people in here. I know that. But get you, we all, the best of us, create with raw materials, not him. He creates all things of nothing by just speaking it into being. And there it is. And there it is. So, all things from him, all things through him. Here's another question. Okay, so that gets us at the source. That gets us the question, where did it all come from? How does it held together? How does it keep from flying apart? How is it that it's made, but then just doesn't, like, you know, most of the stuff we make or, that, or the projects we start, it just doesn't disintegrate. It just doesn't come apart like a tree. How is it that it's held together, this universe? Him. He is the sole source. He is the sole means. He sustains all things, directs all things. The old word for that, the theological term for that is providence. He uh, sustains and directs all things. All things. Holds them together by his most holy, wise, and powerful preserving. All his creatures, all our actions. The old catechism question and answer. All things from him. All things through him. All things to him. Okay, so that's where it came from. That's where it's held together. But why? What's the point? Why? Answer him. You see the trend here? Every answer is him. Him. He's not just the source. He's not just the means. He's the goal. He's the point. For his purposes, for his glory, as the text tells us, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. So the, God is the source, the means, and the goal. He is the creator, the sustainer, and the heir of all that there is and ever will be. All, all things, all that was, all that is, all that will be, owes its isness to his will, his action, his glory, not ours. Back to the orbits, because we are constantly needing to be recalibrated on this point. You know, who is at the center? It's not us. Humbling, I know. But true. 
So Will alluded to it, I think, earlier in, in the way he was leading us in prayer, you know, the way many of us were praying on Friday, Friday afternoon. And I'm sitting there at my desk at home looking out through my the window of my study, and I'm looking at these trees, and the wind is blowing, and I'm hearing limbs crash. I'm hearing sirens out you know, on the streets, and I'm wondering which one of those might fall on this house. It's a simple thing, wind. Can you control it? No. I mean, even the best of sailors, all they can do is tack into it. They don't control it. How much of life do we actually control? You thought about that? Like, how much is actually in our hands? Your health? You control your health? Your relationships, your career, your investments? Or just how a day's gonna go? Yes, we play our role. Yes, as people, as creatures made in God's image, we do play a role in that, a significant role in that, but not a determinative role in that. Not in any of those things. Who's in control? Are we in control? How much control do we have? World events, the economy, the culture, calamities, meteorological patterns. We have a hard enough time predicting it to say nothing of controlling it. How much control do we have? Are we in charge? Is anyone in charge? Oh, no, wait a minute. That's a different question. That's a very different question. Paul answers that in our text. David does too. Psalm 46, or actually, sorry, the sons of Korah. Uh, Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Oh, okay, now we're seeing, now we're getting somewhere. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Very humbling, very comforting, because there is someone in control. And we know who he is. We know who he is. God is due everlasting glory encompasses all things, including, including creation. But that takes us to the second point, and that is of salvation. And just to be straight with you, that's actually the point of the text. In the context of the text, Paul is really, at, really getting at the fact that God is over all, encompassing all in salvation when you're looking at Romans 11. Because that's what he's looking back over, God's work in salvation. But we can, ask this, we can use the same prepositions, just as he is. Same prepositions apply, right? So from him, where does this come from? Who is the author of our salvation? Who's the alpha in that and the omega? God is. You cannot get away from this in the scriptures. It's just all according to his ordained plan. He sets in motion when, the, when and how and where and through whom the promises are going to come and be fulfilled. And then in his grace and in his mercy, he brings us into that plan. Predestines us is the language the scriptures use. So all things from him, all things through him. Okay, so he is the source even in salvation. How does it come to pass? Who is the agent? He is. 
The Son is sent to accomplish our salvation once for all through his finished work on the cross it, over the course of his life, living the life that we were supposed to live but didn't. And now dying the death that we deserve to die but don't have to now because of him. So the Son is sent and accomplishes this salvation. The Spirit is sent to apply that salvation, working in our hearts that we would be able to repent and believe. He is the means. God is the means. He is the source. He is the means. He is the agent. Well, what, but but, but then, then to him? Who's the hero of the story? Who is due all the praise? Who is due all the adoration and the affection? He is. And to the degree that any creature in heaven above or earth below that would want to grasp at any praise due to him, that voice will be forever silenced. All things in salvation, from him, through him, to him. Reminds me of a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy. Uh, so great quote here. Uh, Amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God. To me, as I then was, recounting back pre-conversion, to me, as I then was, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. This, by the way, Romans 11, is not the only place in Romans that we see this God-exalting language. It pours out the pores. It reverberates out of every paragraph. You just can't away, and all of the Bible. But Romans is just accentuated here on this score. So, for instance, uh, a text that no few of us, I'm sure, have had quoted to us in good and bad ways, Romans 8.28. Romans chapter 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Now, that's quite a promise, isn't it? Dang, I mean, that's really... That's quite a promise. That's quite an assurance to give. Paul, why should I believe that? What assurance can you give me? What grounds do you have, Paul, for saying that? To which Paul says, I'm so glad you asked. Keep reading. And he shows us the grounds upon which he can make that promise that all things work together for good for us, for his people. For those, next verse, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Here's how you know. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Here's how you know. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is nothing left to chance because there is no chance. Here's a better way to put it. There is a driver with his hands on the wheel. There is a captain right up there on the bridge. There is a king upon his throne in all of creation and all of salvation, and his name is Jesus. And so we can know and be assured of such promises as Romans 8.28, knowing the greatness of this driver, captain, king, and his goodness, and his 
goodness and gracious sakes the amount of time we could spend unpacking the implications of this but i just you just have to simply say yes this is so humbling and yes this is so encouraging yes this is so humbling and yes this is so encouraging we owe absolutely everything to him everything to him and we have this assurance that we can go to him because he cares about any and everything in our lives We owe him everything, and we can go to him with anything. That should spark our prayer lives. He is due everlasting glory, for he encompasses all things. Now, let me take you back to the orbits before we wrap this up. Um, back to the orbits. Who's at the center? Why am I here? I don't mean me standing up here. I know that. But why, why are we here? Have you ever stopped to just, like, be quiet and still enough to ask that question? Why are you here? Why are any of us here? Why are you here? I was reminded of this uh, news story. I looked it up uh, this past week. It's an NPR story. It's actually from 2018. So when it says last summer, it's referring to 2017, okay? Last summer, 53-year-old Jeff Murphy was hiking in Yellowstone National Park when he disappeared. Park investigators found his body on June 9th where Murphy had fallen 500 feet. That's a drop. From Turkey Pen Peak after accidentally stepping into a chute. And he wasn't on just any hike. He was looking for a treasure box of gold and jewels worth up to $2 million buried somewhere in the Rocky Mountains by an eccentric millionaire named Forrest Fenn. Fenn, an art dealer and millionaire in his 80s, lives in Santa Fe, New Mexico. In his self-published memoir, Fenn included a poem that supposedly leads to the treasure that he hid in the mountains. This is a quote from the NPR um, uh, reporter, the ornate Romanesque box is 10 by 10 inches and weighs about 40 pounds when loaded. Finn has only revealed that it is hidden in the Rocky Mountains somewhere between Santa Fe and the Canadian border at an elevation of, so this helps you a little bit, 5,000 feet. It's not in a mine, it's not in a graveyard or near a structure. Now, as of 2018, this guy, uh, Jeff Murphy, was the fourth man to die while looking for this treasure. So again, I ask the question, why are we here, my fellow treasure seekers? Why are we here? What's the point? What are we searching for? Here's the answer. What's to be our chief aim? What's to make up our chief desire? according to our most basic essential design. What are we to be seeking and striving after? Why are we here? God's glory. That's why we're here. That's why you have life and breath at this moment that you are sitting in your seat. For God's glory. Stealing language from Thomas Vincent, great uh, Puritan, English Puritan. We are here that our highest estimation 
would be of God, our greatest confidence would be in God, and our strongest affection would be upon God. Highest estimation, greatest confidence, strongest affection. We are here, now rifting off Vincent a little bit further, me, that we would take to heart, take in and take to heart God's revelations of himself, that we would trust in his promises, proclaim his praises, promote his desires over our own, and obey his commands no matter the cost. That's why we are here. We're here to glorify God. We are here that he might be the focus of our attention and everyone in the world around us. That would be our greatest desire because that's why the world is here for his glory. That we and all things and all peoples would see and know him. That's why we're here. That's why CPC is here. That's why the fifth and final of these statements within the vision statement actually sets the tone for all of it. All of it. It's the glue that holds it together. It's the thread that holds it together. That is woven all throughout his glory. Can we pray? Lord, thank you for this moment. Uh, where we can pause here at the start of this week, not just to hear from you in your word, not just to respond to you in music, song, uh, praise and prayer, giving, but now this time where we pause and um, are nurtured and nourished here at the table. Oh, would you help us to know you are with us even in this moment and in a very real way, though not seen still yet real. We pray in your name. Amen.